Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building Sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Well, hello, and welcome to episode 47. This week, we're with Bill Browning and Katie Ryan to discuss biophilic design. If this is your first episode, then welcome. Enjoy yourself and be sure to check out some of the other episodes. If you're a regular here, then welcome back. It's great to have you. So first up, a little bit of podcast news. This is the first episode from my new home in Exmoor. I am coming to you from the little caravan on site. Uh, It's a bit damp and musty but that's all the more incentive to build myself a little house quickly. The place is full of birdsong, which you might be able to hear in the background. It's uh, it's honestly pretty perfect, and the sun has been shining for the last week. I feel incredibly lucky. So uh, what else? Uh, yes, I want to tell you about Triodos Bank. Uh, you might have seen a lot in the news recently about how the big banks are still investing billions of pounds of your money in the fossil fuel industry. Triodos Bank are one of the good ones and they actively invest in green energy and community projects. So there is a code in the show notes which will get you £60 when you open an account with Triodos and I get some money to donate to charity uh, when you join. So everyone wins. And uh, just to be clear, I'm not in any way being financially rewarded for this. Uh, I am purely recommending this because uh, I think... It's the right thing to do. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah, Patreon. Um, if you find this podcast informative and you want to help support the show, then head to patreon.com forward slash building sustainability. There is bonus audio from many of the guests. Uh, there's a couple of uh, exclusive episodes up there. I'm going to be putting another exclusive episode up shortly within the next couple of weeks. So some people who have done just that since the last episode are Jules Baker, Joanna Ensom and Karen Ridgewell. Uh, Two of those went for the carved wooden spoon option uh, and I have been sat out in my garden uh, carving away uh, some beautiful birch wood. So I look forward to getting those sent out to you. Um, So yes, thank you so much to those those new subscribers. you absolutely rock, as do all the existing subscribers. Genuinely, it helps me so much. So thank you. Uh, there's a link for that in the show notes if you're interested. Um, and then finally, before the episode, I also wanted to say a huge thanks to Karen Ridgewell. Again, uh, not only a Patreon supporter, but she also contributed our latest bite size episode all about the fellowship she's found in the sustainability sector. It's a truly excellent listen uh, and make sure you check out. And her partner even recorded uh, a nice little intro music for it. Uh, Yeah, very nice indeed. Okay, on to this episode. Uh, Bill and Katie are from Terrapin Bright Green. The blurb from their website says, We believe that connecting people with the environment will lead to a healthy, prosperous, regenerative future for all. We leverage high-performance design, whole systems thinking, and research in biophilic design, bio-inspired innovation, 
and ecological design to make this a reality. So I've been so excited to bring this uh, this episode to you. Uh, as for me, biophilic design is the bringing together and scientific explanation of a huge part of what I do. And it's really, it's the thread that ties almost all of these podcast episodes together. It explains why building with natural materials or dyeing fabric with plants, carving a spoon from some wood or being in nature, why why that all makes us feel so good. So yeah, I'm really excited for you to, to get into this and understand what it's all about. Um, I'll be back at the end. I should say there is a whole load of links in the show notes to all the things that get talked about. Um, and I should mention that uh, there's a little bit of background noise, uh, some sirens and some tweety birds. Uh, but I think everyone is uh, kind of used to the home recording quirks by now. Uh, I'm back at the end. Enjoy the episode. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. worked at a uh, NGO called Rocky Mountain Institute for 17 years and uh, started a group there uh, doing green building research and consulting. And we were looking at aspects of um, productivity in green buildings. We were seeing these really surprising numbers on increases in productivity in green buildings, and we couldn't find anything in the literature about that. So we decided to write about it, and along the way, after uh, publishing her, we met uh, an environmental psychologist named Judy Hairwagon, and we were kind of noodling around what would be the 
why were we seeing these jumps in productivity? I mean, we're saying, well, it's better daylighting, it's better visual acuity, it's um, better thermal performance. And, and Judy said, well, there's kind of a larger context, and that's this conditions uh, that um, are better habitat for us and our connection to nature and introduced us to the term biophilia. And that was 1995, I think. And so we just started collecting everything we could uh, on the topic. Uh, and then in 2004, uh, working with Stephen Keller to help put together a uh, conference to bring together designers and uh, researchers to have this conversation about connection to nature in buildings and in the built environment. In 2006, um, I had left Rocky Mountain Institute to work on a real estate development that unfortunately didn't get finished, um, didn't get built, but uh, went back into consulting and with uh, friends in New York City started Terrapin in 2006. And biophilia was one of the things you know we were all sort of passionate about right from the beginning. And then, sorry, when you've said there that you were doing green building, what there are many different uh, kind of interpretations of, of that term. What, what was sort of your your focus there? So a lot of our initial focus was on energy efficiency because that's what Rocky Mountain Institute is best known for, uh, but indoor air quality and materials choices and all of that. We helped launch the U.S. Green Building Council in 1995 and 1993 um, and were uh, involved in creating the lead rating system as well. So, um, and we still, as a Terrapin, as a company, still do a lot of green building work, usually on sort of weird complex buildings, um, the challenging ones. And uh, uh, we get into net zero energy. We also do work in biomimicry, uh, innovation inspired by nature, asking literally, how does nature do that? Um, but this experiential uh, design component is really one of the things we're, we're best known for. Okay. And how do you come into this, Katie? <laughs> well, my, my background is um, in uh, design as well, but more on the communication side. And, um, but I mean, that's how I started off. And then I ended up uh, being in the Peace Corps in Thailand, the U.S. Peace Corps, and where I was working a lot with um, – teachers and uh, local scientists, um, largely on environmental issues um, that also related to public health and economics um, with indigenous communities and displaced people. And so that's where I started to like put all the pieces together for myself, figuring, and I wanted to work in the built environment um, more than just in, in the, you know, what's on paper. So, um, I went back to, to school and um, got my master's in international development, but I focused on um, green building and more, uh, more like uh, green infrastructure issues. And that's how I came across Terrapin. And uh, one of my early projects there working with Ter working with Bill was, was on biofilt design. I'd say um, the, the, our first real, inquiry um active inquiry with was in 2010 we were working with delos 
Um, you know, it was always a conversation in, in the workplace, um, but a first concerted effort at Terrapin, I think was 2010. And we're looking at how um, we might consider communities, like community development and the experience of the community um, and what kind of research there was existing already that supported um, healthy experience of, of neighborhood development. And ever since then, we've just, uh, it's kind of taken off with the publications and um, a lot of workplace design, um, but also master planning and, and other project types. The the book, uh, Nature Inside, <laughs> always mm-hmm. forgot what it was called, uh, is fantastic, by the way. Oh, I'm glad you, did you, so you, you got your copy? Yes. Already? Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, I just, it's got. The, the sort of perfect amount of uh you know really beautiful photos that are really sort of inspiring but then good good text which is uh you know full of of information yeah we were fortunate to be able to include so many color photos it was um it was a, a great way to complement the, the the storytelling yes and it works as well it's uh you know it's quite a soothing thing which is you know the whole point isn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um what is biophilia? Then? The word itself comes from uh, Eric Fromm, the social psychologist. Uh, from the 1960s? 1960s, yeah. yeah. And uh, literally, word bios, right? Nature, love. Uh, so philia, love. So love and nature. Um, it doesn't really, though, get a, any... It's in an essay that it does, but it doesn't really get a lot of traction until uh, Harvard biologist... Uh, Ed Wilson writes a book uh, in 1994 um, called Biophilia. And uh, his experiences in love of nature. And so you see the you know, inherent connection to nature um, is his definition or uh, innate connection to, to nature. And um, then he and Stephen Keller at Yale and some other folks pulled together a bunch of folks to have a conversation about, you know, is this real? Is there science here? And they collected a bunch of papers together and um, published that as a book called The Biophilia Hypothesis. And uh, in 1994, was that? Yeah, I, th- I think actually Biophilia was 1983. Could and, have been. And then... Biophilia hypothesis was 1994 or 93, 94, that in general time frame. I think the, the, the most popular cited um, or most <laughs> frequently cited uh, paper that kind of sets the tone for the science behind biophilia is the 1984 study by Ulrich that looks at gallbladder patients in a recovery rooms in a hospital. And he's really looking at, you know, how, um, how all things equal aside from their view, you know, um, how they respond to treatment and how quickly they um, uh, recover and what, how, com- how much medication they need and what kind of complaints they get from or, or comments they get from their nurses and ultimately um, the people, the patients with the view to nature versus a view to wall, to a brick wall. Um, the patients with a view to nature recover faster, take fewer medications, have fewer um, negative comments. And so uh, it kind of set the tone for, for how we think about um, the value of a view to nature 
And um, a lot of the research that's come after that has tried to either replicate it or, you know, use the same, um, same general uh, intent to show where this, you know, how, how the experience of nature can have such a profound effect on our psychological and physiological well-being. Um, so there's, there are dozens upon dozens, um, well, hundreds upon hundreds of studies that we can identify certain experiences within nature um, that translate to um, healthy health and well-being. And so, you know, looking at how those um, characteristics or patterns in nature can be reflected in the built environment um, based on the science, mostly in neuroscience, um, environmental psychology, um, and a few other fields of science. Um, there's a lot there to support support those patterns and um, think of, help us rethink, you know, how we're, how we're building, mm-hmm. how we're designing spaces. And the responses tend to fall into several broad categories. Um, a lot of evidence on stress reduction, uh, both psychological stress, but also stress measured through um, galvanic skin testing, heart rate, blood pressure, uh, heart rate uh, variability, even uh, using cortisol, the uh, stress hormone, testing for that. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of studies around that. There's a lot of work around sort of the cognitive impact how the brain's functioning and what parts of the brain are, are responding or not responding um, and how we are processing the environment when we are experiencing nature, which is different than uh, how we process uh, things typically when we are reading a book or trying to do a task or, uh, or other stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, then also work on just how does it impact our emotional state? Uh, our mood and our preferences for places. Um, so we find that um, these different experiences uh, may support one of those outcomes or may support all three of those outcomes. Uh, it sort of varies depending on uh, on the experience. Yeah, and, and also the, uh, who <laughs> who's experiencing it because, you know, some, some of the solutions might be universally applicable and other ones not so much or not appropriate. So uh, understanding who you're designing for is often um, a key component to recognizing which elements of nature are most appropriate. Lovely. So, I mean, that makes it sound like uh, we are at our best as, as humans when we're in nature. Is that, is that the, the sort of what we're getting at? To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, you know, when you think about it, um, we've only had buildings for uh about five thousand years or so right <laughs> and, uh, um you know and certainly communities uh, have not been around that long and so uh we lived in nature and so that's the you know that's the conditions that the human body and mind are um set up for and so when we you know and today most of us spend 90% of our time indoors uh, and probably over the last year, more, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and so it would make sense that, you know, if we wanted the 
indoor environment to support us as best as possible, but we think about bringing in elements of nature into into that experience. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wanted to say just, um, well, how exciting it is for me because I've I've come to this from uh, building with natural materials and using sort of very raw local materials, uh, sort of wood in its unprocessed state wherever possible. And in all that time, there's been this sort of talk of like, oh, you know, they just feel better. My mental health is better. Um, but there never seemed to be any any you know science backing that up. And then it was only probably six months ago that I first sort of clocked the term biophilia and uh and now suddenly it's one of those ones where it's it's everywhere and it's yeah I keep <laughs> keep seeing it and I've the more I research it the more it just seems to to sort of uh really it's sort of my whole ideology and uh and so it's sort of fantastic to know that there are all these other people uh doing you know researching it in, in ways that I I couldn't as a builder well it's definitely um gained traction since the pandemic i mean it had i think since 2012 it had really started to surge um but the pandemic definitely made the conversations whether the term biophilia was in the conversation or not um the talk about you know connecting with nature definitely (laughs) you see it in the news you see it in instagram you see it everywhere um but uh, how did you come across the term? So I was uh, actually, I was talking to uh, a guy, well, sorry, a couple who they grow chairs into, uh, sorry, they grow trees into chairs. Yes, I've seen those. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I've seen his or theirs, but I've seen that done before. Yes. Um, so so what's interesting about them is that the the guy, Gavin, he um he started off with a, I think he had a twisted spine and he spent a lot of time as a kid in hospitals, looking out the window uh, at the the view and then mm-hmm. has sort of then gone on to be, you know, now he's shaping trees. He shaped his spine already and now he's shaping the trees to sort of, you know, so he's sort of come all the way around on that um, and talking to them and they, they said, Oh yes, biophilia. And I went, what was this yeah and that's that's led me down this rabbit hole that's a great story it's a great story we we joke that um (laughs) what we're just trying to do is is find the science behind what we intuitively already know i mean we we get it right you know on on an intuitive level um you know we so one of the and in fact we actually have a proposed project right now um which crazy as it seems there's all this evidence on that we really love wood right um and there's lots of uh so there's a whole field called visual preference you know what are the things that people um like to look at and what do they really like in in spaces and in materials and that. And wood is one of the ones that elicits some of the highest responses. But we don't know why. <laughs> That's interesting. Because I, I, always, I always find it interesting that we appreciate wood, you know, to see the, the grain in it and things like that. But that's not how we see trees. You know, 
trees, right. the, the grain is all right. you know, inside. The so bank. one of the neuroscientists we work with says, yeah, it could be what's called semantic processing. So we see a piece of wood and the brain goes, oh, wood, tree, alive. Might be that. Um, it could also be we have a really strong response to collinear patterns. Um, it, when we see them, um, or radial patterns or uh, nested patterns, um, it's easier for the brain to process it. It takes you know a set of lines moving roughly in the same direction, even if they're curving, is one set of neurons that's firing, and as opposed to when you've got a really complex scatter of lines, then it takes more effort for the brain to process that. And we like it better when it's easier to process. And wood grain definitely has that collinear uh, nature to it. So it may be part of that as well. Um, wood might also be a fractal pattern. So where you have repeating layers uh, and we know that we have a really strong uh, response to fractals as well. Uh, so it could be any of those, but it's something we want to, we've got a proposal in right now to potentially dive in and, and, and talk to some of the neuroscientists and some of the folks doing this work and say, what's going on? <laughs> you know, why, why do we, why do we see this response with wood? And not with other materials, man-made in particular. Yeah. Why doesn't plastic elicit the same response? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. We've sort of talked about the the mental uh, benefits to to you know being in nature and having that that maybe that inside as well. What well, uh, you make a pretty strong uh, economic case in your book. I'm glad to hear that you think it's it's strong in the book. Like I haven't gone back to read it myself since <laughs> publishing it, so I kind of forget like what we covered. Um, but well, so the the part of the reason we get into economics in the first place was that like Bill was saying um, early on getting buy-in was a little difficult. People like the idea of it. Um, That's really cool. uh, But who's going to pay for it? Um, So that's what instigated um, us, the the publication uh, economics of biophilia, which was published in 2012. And, um, it really was, I, I mean, in my opinion, that's kind of, that was the catalyst. That's what got people really interested um, in application. And uh, it's also when we started working with Google and um, on some of their projects or uh, trying to understand what some of the science was behind it, like do, do a little more digging. And uh, the... Um, I think one of the strongest arguments that we could make back then was, was for the workplace. So we, you know, we started seeing things like increased sales per square uh, meter. And uh, we were seeing obviously the work uh, in hospitals because uh, so much of the early studies were in hospital. And, you know, if, if someone can takes less painkillers and um, you know, right. get out of the hospital a day earlier, that's an enormous cost savings to the hospital and and the families, yeah. yeah and definitely. and um, students performing better in classrooms, and um, 
you know, less absenteeism in, uh, in workplaces. Um, and just people changing their attitude. So one of our favorite really early case studies was a bank headquarters in the Netherlands, uh, what's now called ING Bank. And Dutch architect Ton Hours designed a headquarters for them based on Rudolf Steiner's anthroposophical design. And so it's these 10 small towers with uh, atriums coming down through each of the uh, towers and these light sculptures that bounce colored light around inside the towers and handrails with these cast bronze sculptures called flow forms where water splashes down the, the handrails, right? And you see bankers in suits playing in the handrails and, and gardens and just this, right, extraordinary. It, it totally changed the bank's self-image. It totally changed the public's image of the bank. And it's really funny because at one point, I, we don't, we wrote a, I wrote about it in the early 90s, but later on we got pulled into this question about a potential lawsuit on the, the, um, the bank wasn't part of, they'd gotten these tax incentives for energy savings and the bank wasn't, um, producing those energy savings anymore. And, you know, this was really a problem. And and it's like we sort of step back and said, well, of course it's not producing the energy savings. The bank's gotten so popular, you have half again more people in the building than it was designed for. And the building's so popular that they have weddings there and bar mitzvahs and they have birthday parties and they the community events and the things rented out. And so... You know, a bank is open, right, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. No, this thing's open 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., right? Because everyone wants to be in this building, right? So you add all that up. Of course the energy use is going to be a lot higher. <laughs> we should be happy for that, that a building is that love, that, you know, a bank, that people want to be in this building. It was just extraordinary. That's fantastic. So, they, yeah, the economics of biophilia like it looks at all those um, those angles that Bill's mentioned. You know, different um, sectors of society and or building types. And then um, we did an exercise where we uh, extrapolated, you know, from a few studies or examples. Like, what would that mean at a larger scale? At, you know, say for the community or for the state or or the the uh, the nation, you know, what, it, what does that look like um, in financial terms, just to give people a better picture of like, what, what the potential is. Um, and, you know, the, the calculations are done using um, US dollars and um, labor statistics and things like that. So um, it the numbers don't necessarily apply, say in Britain, but um, the, 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 the same sure. yeah. thinking still transfers over it's you know it's going to be the same so uh it's really um really kind of eye-opener to see like what kind of impact you could have and and that document is actually it was written for people to understand context and maybe take it to the policy level or take it to their community or their you know um their whoever's leading their um their initiative and say like look well this is we can do this this is possible um, so it's a very different context than say like the 14 patterns of biofilic design, which is much more design specific, design oriented. So we're trying to, re you know, reach a broad audience, um, and you know, 
translate the science um, in a way that people can really um, get excited about it and and want to learn more. Yeah, I, it's it's kind of a shame, isn't it, that just saying uh, it's going to make people healthier and happier and better isn't enough. To then have, yeah. Yeah, sort of say, <laughs> and and it's going to make you richer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things we you know forget, you know, particularly coming from the green building world where we're all focused on energy and carbon which are really really important um, but what we forget when we look at the cost of a building per unit area the cost of people's salaries and benefits and all that is more than 90 percent of the cost of, of a building on an annual basis for for a workplace for a workplace think, yeah for a hospital i think it's like 55 percent or something yeah in a in an office building it's it's over 90 percent so the energy use is like one percent uh, of the total cost it's still really important we really need to pay attention to that but let's also remember that let's keep the people healthy and happy and and boost their experience you know a way to sort of flip that around is in an office building one percent gain in productivity is typically equivalent to the entire energy bill wow yeah that's that's a, a yeah pretty that that's a strong case mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and then any 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 other uh boost to productivity after that is going to be you know profit and and a happier happier employee base so that's uh there's there's nothing bad about that solid common sense okay so um how how is it that we do this you mentioned uh patterns well i noticed you've seemed to have gained a pattern yeah now 15 patterns Uh, but let's start with uh i mean just for for the sort of uninitiated what what is a pattern what does that mean well um well for a, a little background on pattern um there's so many different words that people use to describe an instance or like, you know, attributes, characteristics, elements. Um, we wanted to streamline the language, at least that we use, um, so that we're, <laughs> we're not confusing each other. And we chose pattern uh, largely because pattern language is already a, a phrase or term that's used in the architecture world. Um, and Christopher Alexander's work is, quite well known and so it just um, it fit really well with the way we wanted to tell our stories so we chose the term pattern um, but largely because that's how we experience these we don't necessarily talk about them outside the this uh the world of architecture and design we don't necessarily talk about them as patterns <laughs> their experiences in nature but um we we've actually started to come to to talk about them as these patterns are experiences in nature. And uh, um, I think uh, it becomes more of a narrative uh, when we start using the word experience. Uh, But uh, the, the 14 patterns that we started off with were strictly based on the amount of research like whether there was just enough research out there to legitimize this thing as one of the patterns, <laughs> this experience as a pattern. So um, there, there are other lists out there that are longer, um, but the, these 14 initially were the ones that we found to have enough uh, 
research to support them in our science-based approach to biophilic design. Uh, and the 15th came along later because um, the, the uh, research basis for it over the years has built up to the point where we begin to understand it better and realize that there, there really is something here to, to share and talk about. So um, that's the background of the patterns. <laughs> and they, they fall into three broad categories. Um, the first we call nature in the space, which are sort of direct experiences of nature in space. So being able to view nature or experience nature through sound or taste or touch, um, having water, uh, having variable light, uh, breezes and temperatures, um, seeing the changes in seasons and the natural, natural processes. Those are all direct experiences of nature. Um, the next category are what we call natural analogs, which are representations of nature. Um, so using natural materials, wood, stone, um, having um, fractals in the space, uh, having biomorphic forms, uh, either in the you know, materials formed into biomorphic forms or even just as patterns. Or the architecture itself, yeah. Um, and then the, the third category are three-dimensional experiences of space itself. And so uh, probably the most famous of those uh, patterns are prospect and refuge, uh, which comes from work by um, uh, an English uh, landscape geographer, Jay Appleton, in the 1970s, uh, wrote a book on the experience of landscape. And he kind of asked this sort of basic question of why do I look in one direction and really say, wow, that's a beautiful view, and then turn my head 90 degrees and go, um, maybe not so much. What are the what makes up the difference of that experience? And two strong things that came through again and again were uh, first this idea of prospect, which is a unimpeded view through space. And it turns out that prospect's really good for lowering our stress level. Um, and our perception of safety in a place, uh, but also this idea of opportunity. Oh, maybe that's a good place to go over there. Decision-making. Yeah. yeah. Then refuge is where my back is protected and I may have some canopy overhead. You know, so think about if you come into a, a classic pub, you have round tables in the center, and around the perimeter you've got high-back booths. Where does everyone want to go to first? Straight to the booths, yeah. <laughs> There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Suddenly you have refuge. But you also now, you have a good view across the whole rest of the restaurant. So now you have prospect and refuge together, right? So if I can treat those two together, you know. Or another classic uh, old, old form building would be um, the ingle nook next to the fireplace, right? Um, so prospect and refuge in those patterns that we've, uh, also identified, um, mystery, which is where, um, there's partially revealed information that 
you feel compelled to go explore to, to learn more. Um, so it can be the curving path, right? Or the curving, uh, high, you know, on a classic high street where you've got the, the road curves. You, you want to go see what's around that corner, right? Um, but it could also be sound, right? Or the smell from the bakery, right? You just, you, you know, get pulled down the street to go see what's in that window, what, you know, what, what that smell is. Um, risk peril is another pattern. Um, you know, standing, looking over the railing in a tall building is, you're not going to fall, but it's a little exhilarating, right? Um, Unless it's a dopamine response in the brain. It's a little, don't want to use too much of it, but it um, makes for places much more interesting. Um, and then the newest pattern is one that we suspected and knew about, but we couldn't until recently have enough science for it. And I'll let Katie describe that one. Oh. <laughs> so awe, <laughs> awe or you know, something being awe-inspiring. Um, yeah, initially we thought of it as more of, uh, potentially a combination of the patterns that Bill just describes, like um, prospect and risk and you know, any no- any number of, maybe there's a smell, there could have been multiple patterns involved, but we couldn't really put a finger on it. Um, and uh, so this idea that you could uh, walk into at the edge of a canyon or into a cathedral and you stop like you're almost your body is just compelled to stop and look up or look out your eyes open up your jaw drops um and there's this moment um and uh that actually there's research behind it that shows that that is a specific experience um and that it also elicits very um specific response like health response particularly um prosocial behavior or your um humility and uh, Bill, am I missing some? More uh, charitable, yeah. More charitable, yeah. Heart rate so, changes, blood pressure changes. I mean, it just—it's this whole cascade of things happens all over. But it's very distinct from the other patterns, um, and it is one that I think is captured really well in certain types of architecture, but isn't necessarily easy to obtain or to create to recreate that that experience. So, um, it's a re- it's really special. Um, special thing to be able to add to our list, but uh, uh, we're still it's still known as the fourteen patterns. So we're trying to socialize <laughs> uh, this fifteenth pattern. So um, yeah, it's a fun it's a fun one to talk about, especially in these times, like when there's just that need to open up and feel connected to people, but you can't always actually physically be connected. There's a way to indirectly connect so we'll be back after a quick break hey there i'm mick from the mick and pat show that's right and i'm pat looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends well you're in luck we're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary discuss culture and politics and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews but it's not just about us we're a community our listeners are our kin and we let you all have a say in what we discuss so saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Wonderful. 
Um, if if we could, I'd love to to go through those patterns and just uh, just talk about how, like maybe a couple of quick examples of how they might be implemented. So one would be um, complexity and order. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but and by market forms, I'm going to pick two together because the two we're finding frequently get interacted. Um, so fractals um, are a great example of complexity and order. They're mathematically repeating patterns. And we typically, when you talk about fractals, people think about exactly repeating things at, at scale, things like the patterns called Mandelbrot sets. And those are regular fractals. And, and um, they occur, but more frequently in nature, you have fractals that are still mathematical patterns, but they're not exact. Right, so think like a snowflake or uh, a fern leaf, or the dappled light under a forest. Right, those are all what are called statistical fractals, and they have a mathematical density to them. And when they're in the mid range, which is where they most typically occur within nature, uh, when we see those in human designed objects, uh, it's much easier for the brain to process. And so it lowers our stress. So the neuroscientists call that fractal fluency. The brain is fluent with fractals. Now, what implication does that have? We had ran a year-long experiment um, uh, that was put together by an architect in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Jim Detterman, uh, in partnership with Morgan State University and the neuroscience team at the Salk Institute in California. And it was in a sixth grade mathematics classroom uh, in an inner city school in Baltimore. And the experiment was literally um, minimal changes in the classroom. So putting down carpet tiles by a company called Interface that had a pattern that's like waving prairie graphs adding a wallpaper freeze around the top of the classroom that was an abstraction of palm leaves. And then on the window where there were Venetian blinds on the windows, replacing those with a fabric blind called a mecco shade uh, that had the tree, the patterns of tree branch shadows silk screened onto the shade. And so creating a statistical fractal there as well. And then watching what happened with those children over the course of the school year. And what we found was their test scores were significantly better than students using that same classroom with the same teacher teaching the same curriculum in the prior year. And we also did four months of biometric testing where we uh, did heart rate variability and we compared uh, one class with a control class uh, held at the same time, um, seventh grade and sixth grade math class, um, for both running at 90 minutes uh, in the afternoon, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday measurements. And what we saw was the um, that the stress level of the students in the seventh grade uh, in the control classroom was pretty much the same unchanged when they got into the classroom and when they left the classroom. Whereas in the uh, biophilic classroom, 
uh, the stress recovery characteristics improved dramatically uh, by the end of class. And uh, so, you know, that's an experiment and a minimal intervention, right? Carpet, wallpaper, window blinds. Yeah. I, I in particularly enjoyed in that, that case study, I was going to bring it up later, actually. Um, one of the difficulties that they said they faced was, was actually stopping the teachers covering the walls with their... Uh, yeah, the things which you normally stick up in a in a classroom. Yeah, the neuroscientists say that is um, overstimulating. It's actually counterproductive, particularly for younger children. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the hardest part of that was getting, because that's such been habit for so long, that the teacher's uh, annual evaluation is partially based on how much they put up on the walls. And so we had to get a special dispensation that the teacher would not be downgraded for only having three on the walls at any given time. That does bring the question, like, if that's part of the system, the education system, like public schools in the U.S., um, I don't know how how, uh, common it is across the U.S., but if that's a common practice, um, we're doing our children a disservice and, and essentially knowing that we're doing it like that's that's a lot harder to undo i would i would think that um convincing school boards across the country to to change that uh, might be a little more difficult than it sounds I'd, i'd say so and we one of the pieces we don't talk about a lot was there was a garden outside the window and the garden was enhanced uh, the landscaping company uh, added to the garden and kind of thought the garden was would be the focus, right? That that would uh, be the driver of everything. Um, and it did have an impact, but when it had an impact was in the month of April when the trees bloomed outside because most of the school year they didn't have leaves. And so um, you had these trees that are up on the second floor. And, um, but when they bloom in April, you see a spike in the data. And then by May, it drops off again back to the, to the earlier data trend. And so, um, the view outside did have an important, was important, but it was basically important for that period in which the. So that was the only differing factor in April was like every, everything else was the same except that the plants, the flowers are blooming. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> wow. Well, I was thinking while Bill was talking, I was trying to think of like what other patterns should we highlight uh, today? And one thought is that visual connection with nature and this idea of like bringing plants in, inside or just be having access to plants is usually a default um, for most people. It's like the easy, it's something very easy to, to incorporate, but um so my instinct would normally be to not include that one because it's so easy. But I think it's actually worth talking about because uh, it's, I think, not necessarily under, misunderstood, but the opportunity isn't optimized or realized because um, the science that we've been able to put together highlights very specific experiences of nature that are even more beneficial. So it's not just that there are plants. It's that um, when you 
incorporate plants that there's some biodiversity there and it's not necessarily a more is better it's the quality of of the incorporation of plants um the quality of uh, you know say the biodiversity um maybe the amount of uh interaction or like a proximity um and if it's if it's not in your personal home maybe it's like in a workplace um that it's accessible to everybody um so it's not just about putting plants everywhere um you know having one place that has good quality seating comfortable seating next to a biodiverse habitat like seating area could be more effective than just having plants you know a monoculture distributed throughout the or actually i mean the research shows that it is more effective than having a just you know just the same kind of plant distributed throughout the the facility so um yeah there's that some a little bit um uh, some thoughtful attention to incorporating plants um but i think another easy with that with that in mind also considering like uh, the depth of view which is something i think we if, with this whole work from home i have a feeling that a lot of people are sitting at their desk in front of a wall um often and so you don't have that depth of view you might have plants in your house but if you don't if you can't see um beyond a couple feet then you're not giving your eyes the chance to relax um and uh I actually was speaking with somebody just uh, this weekend uh, she stepped outside after working in front of the computer all day and she got dizzy and she's like oh I'm sorry I've been sitting in front of my computer all day it's like a you don't have a view you don't have a distant view or a view to nature or something beyond your your little bubble and uh so again it's more like thoughtful application you know what are you actually trying to accomplish here and there's some of that's just a physical effect right if i'm staring at something that's less than a meter away all day long to see that near view the muscles in the eye contract around the lens and they're you know contracting and um eventually they're going to get fatigued and then the lens mm -hmm. starts to harden in that form so if i can get you to look up and look away at something more than 30 meters away more than 100 feet away then now i'm in what's called the infinite visual focus it's one of the different focal zones and uh to get to that uh state all the muscles in the eye relax and the lens flattens So if I can get you to look up and look away every 20 minutes or so or or even more frequently I can get that physical relaxation relaxation um you know sometimes the headache that people are getting is just because it's mus muscle fatigue fatigued, right <laughs> um you know and then you get the you know and as your muscles get fatigued you start you know getting in weird positions trying to change and you get away from it or change um when just being able to look up and look away at a distant view that in itself can can help it only takes about 20 seconds to for your eyes to relax i mean if you're if you're doing it regularly every 20 minutes or so it takes about 20 seconds for the muscles to relax and then you can you can get back so it's not enough time that you're get distracted from whatever you're doing it's just giving your eyes a, a break um and then uh to the to the science that bill was referring to earlier um 
it, it only takes about 40 seconds. Uh, so 20 seconds for your eyes to relax, but 40 seconds before your, um, your stress levels can go down. Right. So it doesn't take a long time. I mean, obviously if you can be physically in nature for a little bit longer, it's going to be more beneficial. But, um, when you are committed to sitting at a desk, like there are small interventions that can like looking up and away and out to nature, they can have a profound impact on you, your, your physiological well-being over the course of the day. Yeah. That's great. I mean, they, yeah, it seems like this is sort of the golden time to to really be talking about this. It's so so fitting for our, for this sort of weird moment. For people who are going to be more permanently, who, like this, this seems temporary, mm. and it will be temporary for some people. But other people may continue the work at home more permanently, and so I think um, more care in what their permanent work home workplace situation is going to be is is really going to be critical and even just taking a picture of nature right if i don't have a good view to the outside even just having a picture of nature to look at will lower blood pressure and heart rate wow so even a, a so a digital representation of nature yeah it not, it's not as effective as the real uh but it, it it does help there's good evidence that uh you know particularly if it's a landscape uh you know uh really beautiful landscape will uh, elicit that response. And if I look at it for just 40 seconds, the prefrontal cortex quiets down. And so the brain's processing a much uh, less energy intensive state. So after looking at it for just 40 seconds, I come back and now I've got better cognitive capacity. I'm, I'm recharged and ready to go. I, that, that leads me on to something I wanted to say that, I, from because of the way I've approached it, you know, natural materials, creating natural forms, you know, it, it sort of runs in that that very obvious mm-hmm. sort of plane. But uh, I was surprised to see that you know the pretty much the very first picture in in the book is of this gorgeous form that's come out. Is it of a, a cooling tower or it's the the museum uh, of African art? Oh yes, yeah, very industrial. Yes, but so, yeah. But you found like a section's been cut away, and it's created this mm-hmm. sort of beautiful, uh, you know, nature esque environment. Well, biomorphic, yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. Well, and it was well, somewhat unexpected. They were just kind of like, okay, what can we do with this? And um, I think they were pleasantly surprised. Yeah, and so so you know that is that's a big thing made out of concrete. That's mm-hmm. you know, not not a natural material as such, but can af- can achieve that same effect. Mm-hmm. Well, partly you know, partly that um, they were trying to stay true to the history of the the agricultural connection, and so um, it makes sense to utilize it in the way that they did. Yeah. So, it, it, I suppose whenever um, it just depends on what your goals are for a given project and whether you are using what you have versus bringing in new materials. Um, And, you know, not every place is going to have a lot of wood or the kind of soil that you might build with. So you have to think more creatively about how to connect to the ecology of the place. So I I think context is what we're we're talking about there. And uh, you talk about that a lot in the book. Why, why is that so important and and sort of how do, how does a, 
a building have context for for its environment? Partially, it's a response to the to the climatic conditions of the place, um, you know, and also just the sun angle and how does the sun move around and through an animated uh, space. Um, there's the cultural context, but there's also the ecological context as well. Um, you know, let's do architecture that refers to where we are and, and makes a tie to where to where we are. Um, you know, there's too many buildings and things that are placeless. And, uh, um, you know, we hope that through these experiences of nature in the built environment, that gives you better appreciation for the natural environment. And hopefully that you'll want to be inspired to um, help preserve the natural environment and restore it. And so that tie to place is is really really important. I don't know if it's if it's a sort of international term, but we would call that vernacular architecture. Mm-hmm. And and uh, yeah, certainly our older buildings are all of their place because well, just because of um, in the past it would have been hard to to ship materials around here. You know, you'd have to be very wealthy, and so the you know the the regular people all built homes from what was there. And that, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's very much of the place, um, just sort of the place reconfigured. Um, so yeah, really nice that that's being being talked about so much, and uh, and you know the the actual benefits of that being being understood. Right. You know, I think about the extraordinary golden stone in the Cotswolds, right? That makes those beautiful cottages and buildings there, and the um you know the the blue green stone you see up in Inverney and in, in, uh, in western Scotland and right they just you know and the, you know even how the color of brick changes in different places based on the, the clays and the, and the places so just having that um, is really helps to find place but also can create really incredible architecture yeah definitely um Great. Well, I mean, I've, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but uh, <laughs> I think we should probably wrap it up. Is there anything uh, that you wanted to sort of close and, and sort of say? Uh, enjoy our book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, would encourage people for sure to get a copy of uh, Nature Inside, a bioflick design guide uh, published by the Royal Institute of British Architects. Just went into its second printing. Um, nice. And... Uh, also, there are lots of uh, publications on the Terrapin Bright Green website that people can download for free. Uh, mm-hmm. A whole bunch of them on biophilia, but also on biomimicry and other topics as well. Yeah, and there's um, I think there's there's quite a few people in uh, Great Britain who are active in this world. Uh, so there's a lot of resources out there, and um, BRE Group is also interested in this topic. So. Um, I think that the resources are there to to continue the conversation locally as well. All right. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our talk. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It was enjoyable. Thanks. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, wow. Thank you so much to Bill and Katie uh, for taking the time to discuss the world of biophilic design with us. If you are interested to find out more, follow the link in the show notes to their article, 14 Patterns of Biophilic Design. I'd say that's your top further reading link. Also check out their resources pages on their website, uh, terrapinbrightgreen.com. They have a new report on working with fractals, uh, which Bill mentioned a few times. Um, And so that's my next good read this evening. Looking forward to getting into that. We ran out of time in our conversation, but I really wanted to know their thoughts on designing with the golden ratio, um, which for anyone doesn't know is the, the ratio that's repeatedly found throughout nature. I suspect that it's part of the complexity and order pattern, um, but maybe I will ask Bill and Katie for some thoughts on that and try and get back to you for the next episode. Um, with this conversation and reading their book, I have really been shaping up the design of my tiny house. I've been making conscious decisions uh, to bring in visual connection with nature. That is through choice of materials and thinking about the views uh, and how I can reduce that sort of putting yourself inside a box feeling. Um, So today, after listening to this episode again, I realised that my desk is pointing in entirely the wrong direction and that it doesn't have any kind of view beyond where where my laptop will sit. Uh, so it is back to the drawing boards and having a little reshuffle there. Uh, see if I can come up with a slightly better design. I think it's uh, probably, I mean, it's a tough thing. The tiny house is a really compact sort of Tetris of, of all the things I want in my space uh, with not really any room for excess space to move into. So we'll see if I manage that. All being well, I should be starting to build in a few weeks. Um, So look out for updates on that on my social media. Uh, You can follow me at uh, Jeffrey the Natural Builder, or you can follow Building Sustainability Podcast, uh, which is on Instagram. Okay, well, that's it. Enjoy your week. Enjoy rearranging your room so that you get a better view from beyond your uh, working from home laptop. And of course, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do share, tag me in it. Uh, it makes a great difference to uh, to getting new listeners uh, involved. So yeah, big love. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.